Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good Friday is a terrible day, and at the same time, terribly hopeful. The hope rests in the defiant spirit of Jesus, even as the mob and the religious leaders and the governor conspire to kill him. On Good Friday, we endure the story of the crucifixion. We listen again to this terrible story, the awful way our Savior, our Jesus, was betrayed, arrested, denied, beaten, mocked, and killed. We stand powerless as witnesses, unable to stop the tragedy, unable to intervene. Then we are left to try and make sense of what we have witnessed. A new word entered my regular vocabulary over the past year. I'm sure I knew the word before. I probably had to define it for a quiz in 11th grade English. But this word has become part of my active vocabulary in the past few months. The word has become a lens through which I see our reality here in St. Louis, in the United States, and indeed around our globe. Our mission statement as a church says we seek to walk in the way of Jesus and to reveal Christ's reconciling love in our city, our nation, and our world. This year, the word that I'm speaking of, it's become a filter, a way in which I see that work. The word I have spent so much time with is this, impunity. I mentioned on Sunday the work of Dr. James Cone, tying together the cross and the lynching tree. Dr. Cohn's central insight is this. Until we can identify Christ with the re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. Dr. Cohn's work spends time with the reality most of us wish to avoid. Only recently have we really begun talking about lynching in America. Just last year, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened in Montgomery. You can see the Capitol from the memorial, the monument to the thousands of black folk who were hung from trees, shot, burned, and otherwise victims of extrajudicial killings. Dr. Cohn writes that often tens of thousands of white Americans would attend these lynchings. They would take photos, pack picnics, and send postcards home from the scene. White Americans used lynching as a tool of terror to keep black Americans subservient, frightened, in their place. When lynchings occurred, the police hardly ever intervened. It was more likely that officers would show up in plain clothes and participate. As he wrote about lynching, comparing the crowds of the American lynchings to the crowd that gathered to kill Jesus, Dr. Cohn used my vocabulary word. He said this, white people were virtually free to do anything to blacks with impunity. I picked up this word from my friend Noah Bullock, the executive director of our partner organization, Christosol, 
When he was here in St. Louis back in October at a speech at WashU, Noah pointed out that impunity is a central component of the societal forces driving so many Central Americans, Salvadorans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, to seek refuge in the United States. When Noah uses the word impunity, he is specific. He talks about the murderous gangs of Central America, the Maras. The gangs fund their enterprise by extorting business owners and homeowners who must pay so-called rent to the criminals. The gangs are known for enforcing the rent through the extreme displays of violence, through public and brutal killings. The gangs use murder as a weapon of terror. Most impoverished Central Americans have no way to combat the terrorist gangs because the police are not much better than the gangs. Central American police also murder and extort people with impunity. A group from Holy Communion is headed to El Salvador at the beginning of June. On our last trip two years ago, our group spent time in a neighborhood outside the capital, San Salvador. In the community, a group of neighbors led by women had organized to push back the gangs. These neighbors demanded funds from their municipal authorities to paint over graffiti. They met with local gang leaders and insisted that the gangs cease recruitment among the young people who were attending schools in the town. They won, and they began to build an island of safety and even a rehabilitation program for former gang members. When we visited this community, we met a boy who was beloved in the neighborhood. He was developmentally delayed and walked with a profound limp. Yet, as is characteristic in close-knit Central American communities, this young boy belonged. He was being raised by his mother and grandmother, but really by the whole neighborhood. Everyone kept an eye out for him. I recently learned that this young man had been killed by the police. Worse, the police published a graphic image in this young boy's bloodied body on social media. They put a semi-automatic weapon in the dead boy's hands to stage the photo. The caption on the police post read, Another rat is killed. The police claimed that the disabled child was a dangerous gang member, that he had engaged them in a firefight. The community knew there was no way this boy was involved in a gang. He had never held a gun in his life. The neighborhood is working with Christosol to bring a lawsuit against the police. They know the likelihood of success is low. Police officers are almost never brought up on charges, especially those officers who work on special gang violence squads. Even bringing a lawsuit is dangerous. The police might come back, in uniform or out of uniform. There have already been threats. But the women, the neighbors, will do this work because they feel they have to challenge the impunity of the police, just as they challenge the impunity of the gangs. Impunity is rampant in Central America, and it leads to further insecurity. When the police terrorize your community, where do you turn? How do you settle a dispute with your neighbor? When your government is unable or unwilling to administer justice, communities are left with no recourse. Impunity is so impossible because it pushes against the natural rule of things. 
the natural way we know things should go. The story we heard of Cain and Abel. Abel's blood cries out from the ground. The natural order is for there to be an account when someone is killed. Impunity ensures this is not the case. Why report a murder? Why give a witness statement when the only encounters you have had with the enforcement, with law enforcement, leave you feeling threatened? It's easier to run, to try to escape to the north. Black Americans made the same choice faced with the lynching and daily degradations of life in the American South. Thousands moved north. Impunity itself degrades the sense of security, the sense of human dignity in a community. Families flee when violence happens with impunity. Our group from Holy Communion will visit El Salvador to participate in a conference looking at violence and impunity. We're going to talk about our own reality here in St. Louis. Last year, St. Louis was the most violent city in America. We even outranked San Salvador in the worldwide list of most violent cities. Less than one-third of the homicides committed in the most violent neighborhood in St. Louis, up near Natural Bridge, result in an arrest. Less than one-third. The violence is spiraling because the violence is unchecked. People are being killed with impunity, and that impunity partly results from a lack of trust between the neighborhood and the police. The resonances between El Salvador and St. Louis are terribly painful. The theologian Ignacio Eacuria, himself a martyr, a victim of state terror in El Salvador, he talked about the ways the victims of history, those who have been subject to violence from their neighbors and from systemic violence unchecked or perpetrated by governments. Eacuria called those who suffered in this way the crucified people of history. The crucified people of history. Dr. Cohn likewise talks about the victims of lynching as the re-crucified. The word impunity does not appear directly in John's Gospel, but I have found the word helpful as I contemplate the story. John wrote after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, for years, I thought of that date as a historical marker. I thought of the stones being toppled. I hadn't counted the human cost. In 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Vespasian's son, Titus, commanded a four-month siege of Jerusalem. His 60,000 legionnaires and local hired guns pushed back through the walled city until they finally made their way to the temple. By the time they breached the temple walls, after that four months, Jerusalem resembled hell on earth. Thousands of bodies hung on the Mount of Olives and the surrounding hills, rotting in the sun. Titus had ordered 500 Jews crucified each day during the siege. They were running out of trees to make crosses when the temple finally was taken. The Romans acted with impunity against the Jews, with no respect for life, no sense of consequences. I think it's helpful to know that John wrote his gospel with these scenes in mind. 
John's gospel is particularly difficult because John simplified his language as he told the story. John talks about the Jews as one character. He glosses over the diversity of opinion in the Jewish community. Most Jews of Jesus' day hated Rome and hated the high priest and the official leaders who were seen as Rome's stooges. Caiaphas in the story wants to use Jesus as a scapegoat to slake Rome's thirst. He and Pilate get in an argument because Pilate's motivation is to put down a Jewish king. Pilate in the story wants to demonstrate power. The motivations are complex in a state acting with impunity. As I said on Sunday, there's a reason that we take the role of the crowd as we tell this story today. As hard as it is to shout, crucify him, I believe it is important that we own these words. For centuries, Christians terrorized and murdered Jewish people. Christians acted with impunity against their Jewish neighbors and used John's passion as a rationale. We need to own these words so that we don't use them again to support anti-Semitism. But we also need to own these words because we are a diverse church in a majority white denomination. We must wrestle with our history and with our present reality of white supremacy. As Dr. Cohn wrote, the cross is about identity. Until we can identify Jesus with the black bodies who were hung from trees, burned, shot, killed with impunity, until we can identify Jesus with those who have been terrorized, we will not understand what it means to be Christian in America. This brings me to a bit of grammar. So much has been written about a preposition when it comes to the cross. Theologians in Europe and America have spent centuries talking about the word for, that word that appears in our Nicene Creed. What does it mean to say Jesus was crucified for us? Much has been written, though no church or theologian has ever settled the question. Black liberation theology and Latin American liberation theology hold a key to understanding the story of, crucifix of crucifixion. Yes, we say that Christ died for us, but another preposition has been more important in the black church and in the churches of Latin America. With. In Jesus, God chose to be with the suffering, with the victims, with the crucified of history. In response to the terror of Rome, Pilate chooses demonstrations of power. Caiaphas works for a scapegoat. Jesus chooses to suffer with the people. Jesus suffers with us, the black church preaches. Jesus died with those who were lynched in Mississippi and Tennessee, Missouri, Illinois, and California. Jesus dies with every person put to death by a perversion of justice. Jesus dies every day with those who are killed in North St. Louis. Jesus died with that little disabled boy in El Salvador murdered by the police. Yes, Jesus died for them, but we understand his death for them because Jesus died with them. Jesus is one of history's victims. Prepositions matter because the story of the passion is the center of the Christian story. Jesus' cross means that those who are victims and those who are willing to put their lives on the line for justice, for love, they do not suffer alone. Jesus is with them. 
Jesus is for them. Jesus walks with those who choose to challenge impunity. The hope of Good Friday rests in the defiant spirit of Jesus. To the end in this story, he challenges the powers that be. He argues with Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus questions the high priest. Part of what makes Good Friday so terrible is that we must listen to this story and stand powerless as witnesses. But the truth is, we are not powerless. We're not. We can intervene. We say as a church that we seek to walk in the way of Jesus. From the cross, we learn that walking the way of Jesus is walking with people. Walking with those who have been made victims. Walking with Jesus means knowing that when we suffer, we are not alone. Walking the way of Jesus means questioning the systems of power and challenging cultures of impunity. We will understand the cross when we walk with the victims. We will know the power of the cross when we, when we see those who continue to be crucified. And we know that they are Christ. They are God's beloved. We will know the power of Christ's reconciling love, the power of Christ's outstretched arms, when we know Jesus' saving embrace saves us by identifying us with those who suffer. Good Friday is a terrible day. And it is terribly hopeful. Because God does not abandon us. God suffers with us. Jesus walks the painful road and invites us to walk along with him. To walk with the victims. To stand as witnesses to a way of love. A way of justice. A way of hope. Amen.